Over the past few months, we've allowed this second Sunday night service as a question and answer service to be taken up essentially by one question each time. But tonight, we're getting back to what the original intent was to try to answer several questions at a time. In fact, we have three. If you're a guest here tonight, just so you'll know what we do on the second Sunday night of every month, we have a question and answer session. However, I am not nearly so smart as to be able to just take questions from the floor and answer them. I make everybody submit them in writing so that I can study up answers prior to and just look at what the Bible says. And that helps me make sure we're actually just getting back to the Bible to answer the question. And so, if you would like to submit a question, please feel free. There are little sheets that you can fill out over on the phone table right by my office, and you can drop them into the appropriate box right outside my office door, and we'll get to those questions as we have time and opportunity. We have three questions tonight. Let's delve right in with the very first question. Our first question tonight is one that's very interesting. I've heard asked over and over again, are there degrees of punishment in hell and reward in heaven? We cannot answer this as one question. We're going to have to divide it into two. And so we're going to first ask, are there degrees of punishment in hell? And I am going to give you the clear and concise and resounding answer of no and yes. And then I want to explain that. The reason why I say no is because it's not in the sense that we most often think. Typically, when we talk about degrees of punishment in hell, we think about folks receiving a worse punishment because they committed a worse sin. In our minds, we, of course, can see that some sins have a greater impact on those around us and on the world. For instance, serial murder has certainly a greater impact on our world than somebody telling little white lies. We understand that and we recognize that. However, biblically, the distinction between those sins just can't be found. There is no distinction among sins as far as the spiritual impact on our souls. And so, in that regard, there is no difference in punishment regarding sin. There are not degrees of sin. I want you to notice what it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, the Scripture there says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The thing we recognize here is, is that God considers sin. He does not consider sin in comparison to sin. He considers all sin in comparison to His glory, and all sin falls short. No matter how great we may consider it or how small we may consider it, Every sin falls short of the glory of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. Isaiah chapter 59. In Isaiah chapter 59, we're going to begin at verse 1. Isaiah wrote, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is His ear heavy that it cannot hear. What's the problem then? Your iniquities, verse 2, have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. What sins? For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue has muttered perversity. Now, Isaiah is not saying that every single Israelite had at the same time committed murder and spoken lies and muttered perversity. What he was pointing out is that all of Israel had sinned, and no matter what the sin was, it had separated them from God. From hands being stained with blood or murder, 
Two, lips muttering perversity or lies. All sins across the spectrum had the same impact on these Israelites and continue to do the same thing to us today. Every sin, no matter how great we may consider it or how small we may consider it, separates us from God. And one more passage in this regard, Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Paul says, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the wages for every sin. Whether it's the little white lie or the serial murder, the wage for sin is death. And the death here it's talking about is a spiritual death, a separation from God, which is, of course, what ultimately hell is, and the torment and the agony that comes from being separated from God. And every sin has that punishment, has that consequence. And so, no matter how great or small we may consider the sin, we recognize there are no degrees of sin. And so God has not set up degrees of punishment for how great or how small the sin is. However, the Bible does indicate that some are going to have worse torment than others. But as we consider that, it's not about whether or not their sins were outstanding versus minor. The Scripture indicates that punishment is going to be based on our degree of knowledge. Look in 2 Peter chapter 2. In 2 Peter chapter 2, we're going to read in verse 20. In 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 20, Peter said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known it, the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. It would be better not to know than to know and turn away from it. Both are going to be punished. But it says that one's going to be better than the other one. One's going to be better off. What does that mean? Somebody else is having a worse punishment, it sounds like to me. I want you to also notice in Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 48. Actually, let's begin in verse 47. Luke chapter 12 and verse 47. The Scripture there says, And that servant who knew his master's will and did not prepare himself or do according to his will shall be beaten with many stripes. But he who did not know, yet committed things deserving of strife, shall be beaten with few. For every one to whom much is given, from him much will be required. And to whom much has been committed, of him they will ask the more. Please note, whether the servant knew or didn't know, he still received stripes. He was still punished. But the one who knew more was punished more. And so God in His punishments punishes those who know more. He punishes them more. Now, I know that some will say, oh, but all that really means is that the fact that since they knew they could have escaped it, but turned away from it, that provides more torment. I don't know exactly how He's going to do it. I don't know if there's a place in hell where the temperature's just a little bit hotter, or if it is just mental. I don't know. All I know is that God says that those who knew and didn't obey will receive worse. But now let's think about us here real quick. We're here. What's that mean about us? We know. 
And so we don't get out of this, do we? But regarding those who don't know, do we just leave them in ignorance? No, because they're still punished. And we don't want anyone to be punished, not even in the coolest spot in hell, if we want to consider it that way. So are there degrees of punishment? Not in the sense that we often think that there's degrees of punishment based on degrees of sin, but yes, we will be punished based on our degree of knowledge. Heaven, however, is a different place. When we go to hell, we go there because we deserve it. When we go to heaven, nobody deserves it. Are there degrees of reward in heaven? I will give you the resounding, absolute, sincere answer, no. There are not degrees of reward in heaven. Now, we have all heard people talk about, oh, I'm getting more jewels in my crown on this one, huh? And we've all heard people talk about, oh, I'm going to be in my big old mansion over there at the corner of glory and hallelujah, and you're going to be at a little shack on the other side of the gospel tracks. That didn't come from the Bible. You want to know where that actually came from? That whole concept actually stems from the false teaching of Calvinism, once saved, always saved, and I'll tell you how it began. When folks believe that once you become a child of God, no matter what you do after that, you're still going to be saved, they suddenly have to come up with some reason why you really ought to go ahead and do what's right. Until they'll start talking about stories about, well, you're in a river of blessing, and boy, if you step out of there, all those blessings are gone. You're just outside the river of blessing. Or they might say, well, you're building your mansion in heaven right now. Sure, you'll get to go to heaven. I've even heard some say, but you probably won't enjoy it very much. Because you're not building a very good mansion, but you stay faithful to God and you'll build a bigger mansion. And see, there's degrees of reward is the way that comes out. But that's not biblical. That's not what the Bible says. I want you to notice three things. First of all, everybody enters heaven by God's grace. Not a single solitary person earns their way into heaven. Look in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and verse 9, Paul said in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Every single one of us, we go to heaven, we're going there on the same merits, not ours, Jesus. Because of Jesus' death and sacrifice and the grace of God, we'll get into heaven. And that's it. And because of that, Paul says that not a single one of us has any reason to boast. Look in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, Paul talked a little bit about Abraham, and he said in Romans chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as debt. Excuse me. The wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. We have no reason to boast, and there's not a single one of us that can boast about anything. Nobody can look at anybody else and say, Oh, look at how big my mansion's going to be, or how many jewels my crown's going to be. It's had more than years. That would be boasting, wouldn't it? But Paul said none of us have any room for that. We couldn't boast about that at all. But second, thirdly, look in Luke 17. Luke 17. And notice what Jesus says about us. Even if we have done absolutely everything correctly, we become children of God, and now we do every single thing properly from now on out. We're just absolute hard workers and we do it all. 
Luke 17, beginning at verse 7, Jesus said in Luke 17, 7, Which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once, sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Likewise, you, when you have done all those things which you're commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. We don't get to say, look at how awesome we were. I'm getting a big old mansion. I'm an unprofitable servant. I'm going to heaven. It's going to be by grace. And I'm getting the same reward as everyone else. Now, Lest you believe that means you can be a lazy, uncommitted, non-growing Christian, please keep in mind what Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. Peter said, But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. How will we enter the kingdom? By growing. That doesn't mean we're going to do the same thing as everybody else. That doesn't mean we'll have the same role as everybody else. But we all go to heaven the same way. By growing in Christ. And so, if you say, oh, well, I'll get the same reward, that means I don't have to do anything. I can be lazy and uncommitted and not grow. No, you will not receive the same reward as your brethren. Rather, you will receive the many stripes as the person who knew better, but didn't do what you were supposed to do. And so, we go to heaven. We're all going to the same heaven. We're all getting the same reward because we're all getting there by God's grace and have no reason to boast. But brethren, if any of us here turn away from the gospel of Christ and go to hell, it's going to be worse for us than it is for the folks who are out in the world and don't know anything. Let's remember that. The stakes are higher for us. We need to stick with it. Question number two. What does it mean that Michael the archangel did not bring a reviling accusation against the devil in Jude verse 9? Turning your Bibles over to Jude 9. You were here for the Bible drill. You heard the song. The book of Jude is right before the book of Revelation, which is at the end of your New Testament. In Jude verse 9, the Scripture there says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked you. Now, what does that mean? What's the point of bringing this up about Michael? And why didn't he bring a reviling accusation against the devil? Keep in mind the context. Jude is here warning the people about folks who have come into the church in secret that are not wanting to serve the Lord properly, but are wanting to use the grace of Christ as a cloak for immorality and, in fact, are denying the Father and the Son. Look at verse 4. For certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turned the grace of our God into lewdness 
and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's warning them about these folks who don't really believe. He said, you don't want to become one of these guys. Now, one of their big problems, and one of the problems that sinners have, especially sinners who want to come into the church and act like everything's all right, is they have real problems with authority. And they don't understand authority. And I'm not talking here when I talk about authority about establishing biblical authority for what we may and may not do. I'm talking about positions of authority, roles of authority. Those who want to sin discard and disregard positions of authority and what it means to be an authority and typically set themselves up as the only authority. He gives some examples. We look at the angels in verse 6. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain but left their own abode, He has reserved an everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. They didn't keep their proper place. They didn't understand their place as far as in the scheme of authority. And then we look also at Korah in verse 11. Peter or Jude provides him as an example. He says, Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, and have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. You remember Korah's rebellion? He stood up and said, it's not right that Moses and Aaron would be over us. He didn't understand authority. He didn't understand what it meant to be under someone's authority. But Jude also provides a contrast. There's not just these folks that don't understand issues of authority. But here's Michael the archangel that understood very well his role in the scheme of things. Keep in mind who Michael is. Michael is not only an angel, but he is an archangel. That word arch means ruling angel. Here is an angel that actually has authority over other angels. Please do not write in a question what kind of authority they have. I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. I could never possibly answer that question for you. But it does say he's an archangel or a ruling angel. The angels know what that means, and that's all we need to know. But he is one. And yet, despite what authority he had, he recognized the limits of his authority. And because of that, he would not provide or he would not give a reviling accusation against the devil. Noticing what these words mean, reviling comes from the term blasphemia, which is often translated blasphemy. Verbal abuse against someone which denotes the very worst type of slander. Accusation comes from the word crisis, which means a decision, by extension, a tribunal, by implication, justice, accusation, condemnation, damnation, or judgment. And so it points out that Michael the archangel would not provide a slanderous sentence of judgment, a tribunal that's judging and sentencing and condemning and punishing. He wouldn't do that. Why? Because he recognized whose role that was. That's God's role. God is the one who provides sentence and ultimate judgment. God is the one who will make those decisions, and Michael the archangel is not. Please don't take this to mean, though, that Michael the archangel had no authority to tell the devil that he was wrong and that judgment was coming, because that's exactly what he did. He said, the Lord rebuke you. Michael pointed out the Lord was going to rebuke the devil. But he recognized whose place it was to provide that sentence of judgment against the devil. And it wasn't his. All he could do is say, here's what the Lord's going to do. Here's what the Lord says. The Lord rebuke you. What does that mean for us? 
means the exact same thing. We need to keep in mind our position in the scheme of authority. It is not ours to provide sentence of judgment. I'm not here talking about congregational discipline. We certainly recognize that God has given His churches the role and responsibility to discipline those who are living in sin. But it is not ours to pronounce the final sentence in judgment. We can only do what Michael does and did. And that is, point folks to the Word of God. The Lord will rebuke me. The Lord will judge. The Lord is going to pronounce sentence on this. We need to remember that we are not the judges. And the fact is, folks don't need us to judge them. They have one that judges them, the Word of God that they reject. John chapter 12 and verse 48. John chapter 12 and verse 48, Jesus says, He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. We need to understand, our word is not final. We are not the judge. We do not pronounce sentence of eternal condemnation. The most we can do is point people to the Word of God and say, this is what the Word of God says. If you don't come in line with it, the Lord will rebuke you and judge you. Certainly. This is not dealing with issues of fellowship. We have to make those decisions based on the Word of God. But what this says is that we just point people to the Word of God and tell them, here's what it says. And the Lord will judge you for this. Question three. What kind of distressing spirit did God send Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 16? 1 Samuel chapter 16. Beginning at verse 14. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning at verse 14, the Scripture there says, "...but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him." And Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. It goes on and talks about David. And in verse 22 it says, Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was. Whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. What is this distressing spirit? Now, this passage has caused consternation among Christians for a long time because the King James Version says an evil spirit. And so, as we read that, our first inclination is to think that, all right, God has sent some spiritual being to harass Saul, but it's an evil one. How can God use an evil spirit to do His will? I think the New King James helps us out with that, recognizing that the term evil here is not used in the sense of wicked or satanic, but is used in the sense of distressing, causing not good things, but bad things. Not just providing comfort and encouragement, but distress. And so that helps us with that. But what exactly are we reading here? Is God actually sending a spiritual being to harass Saul, to cause him troubles. I don't believe that's what we're reading here. And I'd like to explain why. First of all, let's begin by recognizing that this term used for spirit here 
is used throughout the Scripture and it is used in a variety of ways. Certainly. We can look in a passage such as 1 Kings chapter 22 and verse 21 and we find the term used to describe a spiritual being. Then the Spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. But we've got lots of other passages and it's used in a different way. For instance, Genesis 1-2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We find the Holy Spirit there, I believe, Genesis 7:15, And they went into the ark to Noah, two by two, of all flesh, in which is the breath of life. The word for breath there is the same word for spirit, used to describe just that, that animation or that life that is within all living creatures. We find in Genesis chapter 8 and verse 1, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. We could, in this, if God had chosen to, in giving us this verse, He could have used the word spirit in numerous ways. <laughs> then God remembered Noah and everything that had the spirit of life within it and all the animals that were in the ark. And God, or even the spirit of God, made a spirit to pass over the earth and the waters subsided. It could be used in numerous ways here. We go on, we find another passage, Genesis 26:35, talking about Esau's foreign wives. They were a grief of mind to Isaac and Rebekah. So their thinking, what they thought about, that was what was called spirit there. In Genesis 41:8, now it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt. It's talking about Pharaoh. He had a dream, and his inner person was troubled. His spirit was troubled. We can go on and we find in Exodus chapter 28 and verse 3, so you shall speak to all who are gifted artisans whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom. This is not the idea of having a spiritual being that was called wisdom in them. This is the idea that they had a mind full of wisdom or their inner being had talent and wisdom regarding workmanship that would work on the tabernacle. In Numbers chapter 5 and verse 14, it talks about the spirit of jealousy coming upon a husband if he thinks his wife has cheated on him. That's again, not talking about a wicked spirit or a spiritual being named jealousy. He's talking about the fact that he's gotten jealous. It's called the spirit of jealousy. We find in Numbers chapter 14 and verse 24, talking about Caleb being different from the other spies, it says, but my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him. In other words, he's a different kind of person than they are. What he thinks about and the way he thinks and the way he views things is different. It used the term spirit to describe it. In 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 15, Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I am very sad. My spirit is sad within me, is essentially what she's pointing out here. And so, what we learn from this is that we're actually very amiss. If every time we go through the Bible and we see spirit of something, or evil spirit, or this kind of spirit, or that kind of spirit, we automatically assume, oh, that must be a spiritual being, because it is not used that way all the time. In fact, it's not used that way most of the time. It's used in other ways far more than it's ever used to describe an actual spiritual being. And so what do we have here? Is it a spiritual being? Is this one of those few times where it's a spiritual being, or is it something else? I believe it's something else. I want you to keep in mind that the writer here is making a play on words. There's a transition going on here in the book of 1 Samuel from Saul to David. And the Spirit of God has abandoned Saul. It had been with him. But now it's abandoned Saul and it's with David now. 
And here in 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, but the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. He's making a play on words. The Spirit of the Lord has departed from him. What's happened? The strength, the support, the comfort that he had from God being with him is now gone. What does he have in its place? Distress. Depression. Angst and anxiety. Because God is not with him. Why does he have that? Because of what the Lord's done. Because the Lord has abandoned him for his sin. And so in that sense, it's a distressing spirit from the Lord because the Spirit of the Lord has departed from him. He now has this distressed spirit that has also come from the Lord. There's two reasons why I believe it's dealing just with the state of Saul's inner spirit. I believe he's dealing with bouts of depression and anxiety and distress. He has a distressed spirit inside him, just as Hannah had a sorrowful spirit inside her. There's two reasons. One is textual. That is, that the same term that is used here for evil spirit, the same grouping of terms, is also used in Judges chapter 9 and verse 23. And there it says that God sent a spirit of ill will. If you have the King James Version, it says God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. This is not here talking clearly about some spiritual being that has inhabited Abimelech or the men of Shechem. It's talking about a mindset that they were having towards one another. The way they viewed one another. There was ill will between them, and so the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech. I believe it's using the term in the same way in 1 Samuel 16. It's the idea of what's going on inside the person, not some spiritual being coming in to inhabit him. The second reason why I believe it's not a spiritual being coming in to inhabit him is contextual. If we look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, you'll be reminded of the last verse we read in verse 23. It says, And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. I believe he's not talking about a spiritual being inhabiting Saul, because if it was an actual spiritual being inhabiting Saul, he couldn't remove it with such natural means. How was he dealing with it? Well, we'll have David come in and play the harp. And with these natural means, listening to beautiful music, he would overcome this distressing spirit, and the distress would depart from him. I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 17 and verse 21, when the apostles tried to cast out a spiritual being in Matthew chapter 17 and verse 21. Jesus pointed out to them, however, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. He was going to cast out a spiritual being that was harassing and causing Saul problems. They were going to have to have miraculous intervention. It wouldn't depart through natural means such as playing music. But let me ask you, how many of you have ever had distress or depression and you turned on some music and it made you feel better? Anybody ever had that? The distressing spirit left? We've all been through that. Or maybe there's something else for you that if you're a little bit down in the dumps, got a little anxiety going on, you do something and you're feeling better. That wasn't a spiritual being departing from your body. That was the spirit of distress departing through natural means because we're just talking about personal distress. And I believe that's what's going on here in 1 Samuel chapter 16. I recognize, of course, regarding any of these answers, 
I could be wrong. And if you think I am, please feel free to talk with me. I'd love to learn your thoughts from the Bible and show me Bible verses that might demonstrate that I missed it somewhere. I'd be more than happy to study that with you. And if I have to change an answer next month, I'd be more than happy to do it. I hope this has been helpful to you. Please feel free, if you have any other questions, write them down on one of those slips of paper, put them in the box on the wall outside my office. I'd be more than happy. Again, we only have 12 of these a year. And so far, what we've done four, and we've covered six, eight questions. So that's, that's not bad. But probably won't be able to cover every single question ever. That's why I'd like for you to put your name. That way, if I can't cover them in a sermon, maybe I can at least respond to you personally, and that will be helpful. Would you pull out your songbooks, please?